let's pray as we get into Acts. Lord, we thank you for your word, God. We, we thank you that, that you have given us uh, what we need through your scriptures to know uh, about you, to know about salvation. Lord, we thank you for the good news that, that Jesus uh, lived, that he died for us, that he, he rose from the dead, that, that, um, that he's ascended to be with you, Father, um, and, and that we can have life. We can have the forgiveness of sin um, because uh, of, of the good news, Lord. So God, in this time, as we're in your word, would you shape us, Lord? In, in particular, would you help us to see how critical uh, critical it is that we respond to the news of the resurrection, Lord, uh, because it, it really changes everything. And we do not want to be uh, a group of Christians that, uh, that walk around as if, as if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Lord, you did. You defeated death, and that should change us completely. So would you continue to grow us, continue to change us, continue to shape us by your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you could turn to Acts chapter 23. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, I think I've said this the last couple of weeks, but we have Bibles out in the hall and I would just love it if people uh, that didn't have a Bible took one of those. Or if you, if you know somebody at work or in your neighborhood and you think they'd like a Bible, man, take one of our Bibles and, and give it to them. We'd love to, to need to buy more Bibles um, uh, because people that don't have them are, are getting them from us. Um, if you haven't been with us for a while, we're in the middle of a, a pretty long story. It's taken several weeks just to get to where we are. So let me um, briefly, very, very briefly catch you up. So Paul, now the Apostle Paul wanted to make it to Jerusalem. He was wrapping up his missionary journey, wanted to make it to uh, Jerusalem in order to celebrate Pentecost. Um, even though he was told by multiple sources that um, if, when he goes there, uh, he would face massive persecution, that he would be bound, um, he, would, he would suffer greatly for the gospel. But he knew that this is what God had for him. Um, God had made it very clear that he was going to be with him, that, that he was going to help him to testify about Jesus um, before many people. So he gets to Jerusalem, and that causes quite a stir, both inside the early church and then outside of the church as well. So at the advice um, or maybe even request of some of the early church leaders in Jerusalem, um, he took four Jewish men to the temple that had made uh, a vow to the Lord and he, he paid their way, right? For everything that was involved with this vow, with the offerings, everything that they had to do. And he himself participated in the offerings and in the, in the um, purification at the temple. This was not enough for um, many of the Jews. And, and there's this uproar. Um, he's, he's arrested. There's confusion over who he is even. Um, but what does Paul do? Well, he speaks about Christ. Every chance he gets, he's talking about Christ. And people, the more he talks, the more fired up they get. Um, so uh, the tribune, this Roman official, was about to flog Paul without, even, uh, without being convicted of anything. And then Paul, at the last moment, I said this last week, Paul at the last moment, he's like, hey, is it legal to flog uh, an uncondemned Roman citizen? And the guy's like, whoa, you're a Roman citizen? I didn't know. So then the tribune takes Paul before the council, which is made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. Paul gets up and, and uh, he, he uh, starts to talk. And what he does, it's, 
It's brilliant what he does. He gets them to fight against each other, right? And, and things get so heated in the room that the tribune is afraid that Paul is going to be torn to pieces. So he removes him from there. And then we pick up in 2312. So if you have your Bibles, and if you don't, uh, the, uh, the screen will have the passage. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So the, the Jews, they're frustrated. I mean, the frustrated isn't even strong enough. They're irate that they, their attempts to stop Paul um, have been unsuccessful. Uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, they, they were not able to get Paul convicted of anything. So they're desperate right now and they come up with this scheme. Right? And their plot um, included having Paul sent back to court so that as he's on that path um, down the narrow streets, there could be an ambush for him where, where more than 40 men had taken this oath right, that they would kill Paul. They, they weren't going to eat or drink until they killed Paul. So Paul is in extreme danger. These guys are, are so angry. Right? And it's possible um, that, that we can be angry and not sin, as Scripture tells us. But so often, um, our, our anger festers and grows. And we are prone or, or uh, we are susceptible to behave in ways that we, we never thought possible. And my guess is that at least some of these 40-plus men um, never would have thought that they would be in a plot to, to kill an uncondemned man. So Paul is, is in danger. And yet God has delivered him over and over again. So the question here is, well, how, God, are you going to providentially intervene? Because we know, we know because of the promise last week in verse 11, that Paul would testify, not just in Jerusalem, but, but, <clears throat> but also in Rome. So somehow God is going to get Paul to Rome. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, but do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell uh, no one that you've informed me of these things. So Paul's sister's son catches wind of the plot. We didn't even know that Paul had a sister, let alone this nephew, but he somehow gets to Paul. Paul sends the nephew to speak to the centurion who moves him on to the tribune and they speak in private. And now the tribune has to figure out how he's going to get Paul to safety. God is at work here. Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions 
and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote uh, a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned he was a Roman citizen. That's not totally true, if you remember last week. He was the one that bound him and was ready to flog him and then happened to find out because Paul told him. So he didn't really rescue him. Moving on though, 28. And desiring to know the charge for which they're accusing him, I brought him down to their council. That part is true. 29. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Also true. And when it was disclosed to me, that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded, them to be, uh, he commanded him to be guarded at Herod's praetorium. So the tribune was aware that there were at least 40 men who had taken this vow and he doesn't want to mess around. So he... he he brings out a ton of people, right? 470 men, 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, 70 horsemen. And it seems here like, like this is just a Roman flex. Um, and, and that is true, right? Rome, they didn't, they didn't want to deal with riots. They didn't want to deal with uprisings. And their MO was to squash that down with all kinds of might. But I actually think this is God flexing. He's the one that's protecting Paul. Right? No, no human is thwarting the plans of God. God has designed for Paul to go on to Rome to speak. Um, and we can come up with all kinds of plans or schemes in life, but what God is doing will not be stopped. And I don't know about you, but I just find it so easy to worry about things in life. And maybe, maybe you wonder, with your circumstances right now, maybe you wonder, does God even see me? Or, or, or maybe it's not that. Maybe God sees, but you wonder, God, do you even, do you care? Do you care about what I'm going through right now? Like I'm, I'm dying inside. This thing that you have me going through is too hard for me. God, do you care at all? Man, brothers and sisters in Christ, do we, do we believe, do we trust that God is always at work? Do we trust that our God is good? Do we, do we trust that in even really hard circumstances, right? Circumstances that we wouldn't wish on anyone. Do we trust that God is going to do good? And I look around this room and I don't know everybody's story, but I know a lot of stories in this room. Uh, I know a lot of people that, that I could invite them up here to share their life story. And some of the things that, that they've gone through, man, we would just weep as they, as they told us what they have been through. And I've also heard those people over and over again share with me about God's goodness in the midst of pain, about God's steadfast love, about his, his provision as they're living out truly their worst nightmares. 
what God is, is doing in all of this in, in Acts here is he's leading Paul to share Jesus with more and more Roman officials. Like he's just going up the chain. And what so often in life from our perspective just looks like nothing good could come out of, of this situation. But what we cannot see is at that moment is what God is in fact doing. Acts 24 verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one uh, Tertullus. They, uh, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had summoned, uh, when he'd been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. So th this is their lawyer that they brought in, right? And he's buttering up Felix. Tertullus does not like Felix. First of all, Felix isn't a likable guy. We'll get more into that next week, but, but he's been ruthless in order to get into power. So he's buttering him up to, to make his case. So he, he's saying, man, Felix, you are looking good today, my friend, right? I don't know how you did it, but that toga is just hanging on you just right. Have you been working out? Oh, and that haircut, where do you go, right? He's, he's just getting him ready for this, verse four. But to, to, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, talking about Paul, we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Right? so they, they said he's stirring up riots. They said he's the ringleader of a, of a sect. And a sect isn't necessarily a negative term, but certainly here he's using it as a negative term. He's saying he, he's a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes, right? That, that little town, Nazareth. What good has ever come out of Nazareth? You, you gotta think of like some podunk town, right? That, that no one would even go to. I'm not gonna name a town in case you're from there, but... Um, <laughs> he, he won't call them, he won't say he's the ringleader of the Christians, because that would acknowledge that, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Savior. He won't call them the way, which Paul used that, that name in just a little bit, because that would, that would imply that, that Jesus might possibly be the way, the truth, and the life. He, he calls him the ringleader of this sect. And then lastly, he says, he's profaned the temple. Verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept 
that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards uh, both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. And we've been, we've been reading all this just to get here. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. So Paul does a, a masterful job of clearing himself of, of those charges that they bring up against him. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't causing a riot, right? He wasn't even in a, in a verbal argument with anyone. He didn't defame the temple. And, and this sect, right, uh, or a so-called sect um, called the Way, uh, they're worshipers of the God of our fathers, meaning the, the same God that these Jews who are bringing these charges against me, we worship the same God, right? He says, we believe in the law and the prophets. Paul does a great job of making his defense here. Uh, but then he tells Felix, this is why, this is why I'm really here. I'm here because of the resurrection of the dead, because I believe in the resurrection. So he successfully argued against the charges of the Jews that, that they hoped to nail him on. And then he adds this in which they didn't really bring up. So how can Paul say that this is the reason that he is on trial? Well, for sure, we know this from last week, that the Sadducees disagree, right? That, that that's part of what got him out of that, that council meeting is the Sadducees completely disagree. They don't believe in the resurrection. So you could say that again, maybe Paul, his shrewdness is shining through here. Maybe again, he's trying to, to stir up the Sadducees against the Pharisees and whoever. Um, so this, this could be an attempt for that. But I think, I think there's even more shrewdness here that Paul is demonstrating, right? He's telling Felix that the reason he's on trial is not a matter of law, not Jewish law, not Roman law. It's a matter of theology. And if that is the case, Rome doesn't care. Felix does not care uh, about a theological uh, squabble. What Felix cares about is order and control. But I think there's even more depth to verse 21 in the shrewdness of Paul here. Yes, this is a theological issue. And yes, maybe it'll stir up the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but, but Paul is right, right. The true reason that he's there on trial is the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus changed everything for Paul. You remember a few weeks ago when Matt uh, preached that passage as Paul shares his testimony. Right? He, he, was, he was a Pharisee. He was zealous for God. He was zealous for God's word and following God. He was so zealous that he was having Christians persecuted. He was having them thrown in prison. He was having them killed. And then on that road, he meets the risen Jesus and everything changes for him. The news of the resurrection shifted everything for Paul and the news of the resurrection ought to shift everything for us as well. And I say that, that's, 
that's if you do believe that Jesus rose. And I, I know we have, we have some people probably every week that come to our church and you're checking out Jesus, right? You're reading the Bible maybe for the first time and, and you're trying to figure out what is true. Well, I'm telling you, you need to know. You need to, you need to figure out, is the resurrection true? And, and I'm speaking from a vantage point that it is true as scripture says. But, but if, if the resurrection is true, then the news of the resurrection ought to change everything about how we live. And, and we know what it's like to receive receive news that changes, radically changes our, our lives, like big, big news. So here's a negative example. Let's say um, that, that this year um, there's just something not right with your body, right? And you, you go to the doctor, you have several doctor's appointments, uh, they do all kinds of tests, right? And, and then, uh, then your doctor calls you up, says they've got a diagnosis, bring you in and, and it's bad news. Not, not necessarily terminal. I mean, this, this could kill you, but, but there's a chance with, with, uh, with treatment that you could live. So they lay out all the treatment options and your doctor, uh, your, your team of doctors, they're ready, right? And, and they're ready to throw everything that they have at this. But you also need to be ready to make radical changes. It's not going to just be the treatment that the doctors do. You, you gotta change your diet completely. So all those foods that you love, right? They're not good for you right now. They probably never were good for you actually, but they're, they're not gonna help you beat this disease. You change your diet. You gotta be super careful because your immune system is gonna be so compromised. So you, you can't be around people even with like just a little cold, right? You, maybe you can't be out in the sunshine because of, uh, of the impact that the treatment has had on your body. And the list goes on and on and on. You, you've gotta change in all these ways so that hopefully you can not just survive, but eventually beat this disease. Right? And my guess is most of us would do that. Right? We get that news. We're like, okay, this is what I have to do. I'm in. I, I, I'm changing because I want to live. Right? That's a negative example of rearranging your life because of big news. Man, the resurrection is the exact opposite. Jesus died and rose so that you could live, so that we could live, so that your sins could be forgiven when you trust in him. That is news that should change everything. So the question, brothers and sisters in Christ, is has the news of the resurrection changed you? Does it continue to change you day after day? Because it should, right? First and foremost, it, it, should, it should make us these worshipers of our God, just blown away by his love for us, like we sang about earlier, right? It, the news of the resurrection should fuel our worship. And I, I don't just mean singing, I mean everything that we do, every aspect of our life aimed at worshiping Christ, right? It, it should change how we think and, and how we view this life and, and this world, right? How we approach uh, everything in day-to-day in -day life, small decisions, big decisions, right? It, it should change even our thought life, even the things that, that maybe we'll never tell anyone, just the stuff that's inside of us. We, 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 would, we should submit that to God because Jesus rose from the dead and he's given you newness of life. The resurrection, the news of the resurrection should change our relationships, right? It, it should change how we think about people, how we treat people, people that, that we love, right? People that are close to us and, and even people that, man, that are, are jerks to us, people that, that mistreat us. And the news, of the, the news of the resurrection ought to change 
how we use money, how we think about our finances, right? We should be some of the most generous people in the world. And I don't just mean to your church. I mean, I mean to, to people that we come in contact with. We should be so generous because our God has been so generous to us. The news of the resurrection should change all of our behaviors, right? All kinds of behaviors, Right? So we don't, we don't maybe party like you used to before you met Christ. You, you, don't, you don't use people now. You, you, you're honest, right? In, in business transactions, you're above board. You don't cut corners. You're quick to ask for forgiveness. You're quick to confess your faults and, and your sin. And you're eager to do what God's word says, even when it costs you, right? Even when it, it costs you maybe relationships, the news of the resurrection ought to get us to honor our word, to take, uh, when, when we say yes, when we make a promise to someone to take that seriously, it ought to, it ought to uh, greatly change how we view marriage, right? The covenant of marriage, which in our culture, man, it's not, it's not a covenant anymore. It's a, hey, I hope this works out. Man, we, we should be changed by the news of the resurrection by being some of the most gracious and loving people walking this planet. Right? We're recipients of God's grace. We're recipients of God's undeserved love, his forgiveness, and that should transform us to be some of the most understanding people, to be some of the most forgiving people out there as we remember that we were sinners before Christ saved us by his grace, and we're just so eager to share that grace with anyone and everyone. Right? The resurrection brings newness of life because of the life that Christ gives to all that receive him. We're to live in a whole new way. I'm gonna throw a ton of scripture at you right now. Maybe too much, I don't know. You probably can't do that actually. It's not too much scripture. Um, but uh, maybe just write these verses down, right? The, these references and then go back over them. This is Romans 6, 4, and 5. And, and I bet all of these are gonna be very familiar if you've, if you've been in church for a while. We were buried therefore with him by, uh, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, right? The resurrection brings newness of life. It should change everything for us. When we think about the gospel, certainly it centers on, our, our minds center on the cross and, and rightly so, right? The cross is the, justific or it's the, it's the basis for our justification. Romans 3, 25 and 26, whom God put forward, and speaking of Jesus, uh, as a propitiation, which, which means wrath-satisfying atonement, right? I'm sure you don't use the word propitiation much, but that's what it means. Um, uh, so whom God put forward as a wrath-satisfying atonement by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, right? The cross is essential. His sacrifice, his death is essential, but we cannot forget or we, um, we, we should not disconnect the resurrection from the good news, right? Christianity hinges on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul writes this. He says, and if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile 
and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Right? By, by raising Jesus from the dead, God tells us that he's satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. We do not have to wonder, was Jesus' death good enough? No, his resurrection declares to us that, that, that in Christ, our sins can be forgiven, right? That, that when we believe in Jesus in our, as our Savior and Lord, that we're forgiven of sin. Let's, let's keep thinking about the significance of the resurrection. One pastor wrote this. He said, the resurrection is the ground of our assurance. It is the basis for all of our future hopes. And it is the power in our daily lives here and now. It gives us courage in the midst of persecution, comfort in the midst of trials, and hope in the midst of this world's darkness. So let's look at the connection of the resurrection and the spirit, Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who, who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, right? The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, he tells us, is dwelling in us, giving life to these mortal bodies, life to these perishable bodies. Because why? Because the spirit is in us. He has taken up residence in us. That should regularly blow us away, right? That, that God has chosen in a spirit to, to dwell in us. And Paul connects for us that it's the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us that we are to live out this life, this newness of life, right? Not as we used to before in the old self, plagued by sin, but now we walk by his spirit, Romans 8, 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Do we walk in step with the spirit? Is this how we're living our lives? Paul says, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we're given the spirit. The spirit is the one that tells us this in Romans 8, 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him, right? So we've been adopted into God's family. And I know I talk about my adopted daughter all the time, whenever scripture talks about it, I just can't help myself. So Maddie, uh, on that day, about seven years ago, she became a goose tree legally, right? And if you're like, what's a goose tree? That's my last name. It's not some weird church. Um, it's a weird last name. Anyway, so Madison becomes a goose tree, right? She, she's not just a guest in our house. You know, she's, she's, not, she's not someone that's, that's, that's really, really close to us. No, she's my daughter, right? She's got brothers and sisters and grandparents and aunts and uncles, right? When, when, when Lindsay and I pass someday, whatever inheritance we have to pass on, she's getting a fourth of it, right? Just like her brothers and sisters. Man, we've been adopted. We've been brought in to God's family. We've been raised with Christ to life, brought into this family. And now, because of the resurrection, our, our focus in life as believers has shifted. Colossians 3.1. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, right? If that's true, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. There's no reason for us to get stuck, to get fixated on earthly living. That makes zero sense for the believer in Christ. Our sights are set on Christ as he is seated at the right hand of God. Our gaze is fixated on God glorifying living, not satisfied with living uh, for the ways of this world. So, so those are just some of the ways that, that we see this, this connection with the spirit and the resurrection and what that means for us. But man, we, we sang earlier about, about our hope that we have. Man, the resurrection is the foundation of our hope. First Peter 1.3 it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our hope in Christ is real. Christian hope is not a wish. And that's how, that's how um, in, in English, that's really how we use that word, hope. It, it just, we use it as a wish. I, I really wish this would happen. Right? I, I wish that, that my kid would, would, would have a good experience in college. I wish that this career decision is a good one, right? right? I hope or I wish that this thing works out. Christian, Christian hope is, is not wishing the hope that we have in Christ is certain, right? Peter calls it a living hope. Why? Because Christ is alive, right? That is why our hope is certain, right? He has gone to prepare a place for his children, right? That, that he will come back and gather his people, that he will make all things new, that, that, that we will have this inheritance, nothing like the inheritance that Lindsay and I will pass on. We, we have this inheritance that Peter says, it can't be exhausted, right? It's one that will never fade. It can't be stolen, right? This, this is the hope that we have. We have hope because of the resurrection. When someone dies that knows Jesus, we're comforted greatly by that because our hope in Jesus is real. Our hope in eternity is real. Uh, when I'm asked to speak at a memorial service uh, for someone that did not trust in Jesus, man, it is, it is hard because I, I cannot offer hope for, for that person that is now dead, right? I, I cannot offer any word of hope. What I do is I offer hope to the people that are sitting there in that service, that they can respond to faith in Jesus, but there's no hope when we do not respond to Jesus and we die. I, I can't with a clean conscience just say, hey, they're, they're in a better place. And I know, I know that's hard news to hear, Right? Because every one of us in this room, we, we have people that we loved that, that have passed that did not trust in Jesus. And, and man, I'm telling you, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus, don't make that same mistake. Man, respond to him today because he loves you. Right? He, he's brought you to this church. He's got you hanging around Christians, reading, reading a Bible maybe. He's trying to tell you, man, hope in me is real. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, it, it, it reminds us of the, of the hope that Christians do have. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Sometimes I, I think about friends of mine 
that have already passed on, uh, that, that know Jesus and they're with the Lord. And, and sometimes I'll just wonder, like, man, what is it like for them right now with, with Jesus? What, what are they experiencing? I know they're not experiencing pain. I know they're not stressed out about anything. They're, they're not anxious. Right? They know joy better than I do. They have comfort um, with, with Jesus that is off the charts. They, they have peace in Christ as they are with him. Paul said this in Philippians 1.23. He said, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. I love the way that Paul wraps up 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's because Christ has risen, that everyone who is in Christ can have total confidence that, that our, our, our labor in the kingdom, in, the, in this gospel-sharing work, is not in vain. We have true hope because Jesus is alive, and we are, are alive in him and, and with him, right? And, and we might look back at, at where we ended last week, where Paul has promised, hey, you're gonna, you're gonna keep testifying, not just in Jerusalem, but, but in Rome. And, and we might think, well, yeah, that's the apostle Paul, right? Like, who, who am I? There's a fictional story that you've, you've probably heard. I've heard it a couple different times. There's this mom trying to get her son to take piano lessons, and, and he's, he's just kind of classic wiggly boy, right? He doesn't want to sit at a piano and, and learn anything. But he's, he's been doing it, and she thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take him to this, this concert. Um, of this great uh, piano player. Uh, it's in, in this big music hall. Everybody has to dress up, which the boy, that's the last thing he wants is to have a, a shirt and tie on. But, but there, there are men there in tuxes, women in, in fancy dresses, and the boys, they've got pretty good seats, and he's just fidgeting all over the place. Last place he wants to be. And mom's talking with people, and, and the boy gets distracted, and he gets up and just kind of starts wandering around. And he finds the way onto the stage. And he sees that, that piano way nicer than any piano he's ever seen before. And he sits down and he starts playing the only song he can remember. He starts playing Chopsticks, right? And, and it just fills this great music hall. And, and people are like, what's going on? And they look and they see this boy sitting at the piano. And at first everyone's stunned and it's just silent. But then people start getting vocal. Wow, get him off of there. Like, what is he doing? Get that, get that kid off of there. And, and the, the composer, the, the great piano player, he's off stage. He hears what's going on. He pokes his head out, sees that boy playing. He throws his coat on, runs out there, and everyone's just watching to see what's going to happen. And he, he leans over the boy, and he starts just improvising this, this beautiful counter melody to Chopsticks. Right, the, the, the simplest song ever, but he, he's playing this, this like, like, like a great pianist can do, and he, he makes just this beautiful song with this little boy, and he's whispering in the boy's ear. He says, keep playing. Don't quit. Keep going, son. Don't stop as they're making this music together. And we're, we're people that are changed by the resurrection of Jesus we have the good news in our hearts and in our minds. And as we might stumble and fumble and just stutter as we try to talk about Jesus, the master is playing a beautiful counter melody 
to, to our little gospel version of chopsticks. And he's saying, keep going. Don't stop. Keep playing. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. And, and I confess, yeah, there, are, there are probably all kinds of places where I'm just, or not, not, kind, not probably, there are all kinds of places where I'm just resistant to the resurrection changing me. There are things in me that I just don't want to let go of. And I'm sure that's true for my brothers and sisters in Christ. God, we, we confess that to you, Lord. Would you, would you change us? Would you continue to grow us? Would, would you remind us of, of, of the true hope that we have, Lord? Uh, of this news that, that we carry in these, uh, we're like these broken pots and, and yet we've got the, the best thing in the world inside of us that the, the, that the whole world needs to hear. Jesus, change us, Lord. Let, let us not forget the, the, the cross or the resurrection. And God, would that fuel everything, Lord? Would we walk uh, in newness of life? Would, would we, Spirit, truly let you empower us to live for your glory, God? Would, would we not just be a bunch of people that come to church every Sunday or maybe a couple Bible studies in the week too, but, but we, would we be people that are just radically changed by the news of the resurrection, Lord. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.